Hello, listeners. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, as per usual. It's Thursday, the 4th of February, and I'm joined, as per always, by Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. Hello. Hey. Hey, how's it going? As per always, you could sound a bit more excited to have us. No, I mean, it's just, uh, have just us confirming on. that we're a, a collective unit, um, solid uh, trident of podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> and not uh, and not hobbyists, not people who just turn up uh, on occasion because it makes you feel good. But uh, sounds like you have a guilty conscience, Alex. No, no, I'm it's I'm not playing any authenticity politics, which is actually kind of a problem. Um, on the left, I guess everybody uh, claiming that they're authentic and they're truly in touch, and that uh, their interlocutors or opponents aren't that they're phonies and we're real. Um, I guess that's what we're talking about today uh, about political hobbyists and are, are, are podcasters political hobbyists? And what do you what do you understand by by that term? Podcaster, I think no, it. No, it <laughs> yeah, no, no. We, we, it means um, no. I think yeah, our, our podcast our podcast is political hobbyists. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it is a hobby that um, you know you 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 get on the mic and you and you you kind of talk through your opinions and you you think that people might be be listening. Um, but I think you have to obviously be with. <laughs> You have to be realistic might be listening. Yeah. about about what you're what you're doing. I think if you're t- if you're taking it seriously as a political intervention, then maybe you might be in danger of a kind of of hobbyism. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think we have have those delusions. Well, maybe we do. Maybe we don't. No, but that's right. It's not like you know, ipso. It's not ipso facto politics, but it's it's political. It's politically adjacent. It's uh, yeah. It's kind of a intellectual political. Kind of thing, but I guess this is the thing. Everybody thinks everyone else is a is a phony, right? Um, and it kind of is a problem because everybody accuses um, the other of uh, being out of touch or of uh, just pursuing their own political project without regard for how much traction it has, um, or maybe the opposite. Actually, uh, I do think every. I don't. I mean, I do think everyone else is a phony, but um, I hope that doesn't make that me. That comes hobbyist. as no surprise. Comes as no surprise <laughs> to listen to think that Phil thinks everyone else, everyone else is wrong and a phony, and only me. Yeah, uh, but only not, I have seen the light. In, well, in Phil's case, it's not. It's not performative. He actually thinks that he's not. <laughs> he's not pretending. That is. That is actually true. But uh, luckily, luckily, we've got someone. Um, who's written the book on political hobbyism? Uh, David Swift is our guest, and so um, uh, he'll he'll be able to um, he'll be able to tell us a bit more about um, what some of these labels mean, um, and how performativity and hobbyism factors into the left today. So, should we get David on the line? Yeah, let's do that. And just before that, I should say that uh, David's book is called A Left for Itself, and it's out on Zero Books now. Uh, so if you like what you hear, um, or even disagree with it, and you want to actually read the book, uh, that's uh, where to find it. And of course, we always include links to the book and readings in the show notes if you want to check that out. So welcome to the show, David. Thanks. Nice to be here. So um, on the um, on that note, and actually, there's no biographical information about you in the book, and we're wondering if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I um, did a PhD a few years ago, looking at um, history, the history of the Labour Party, particularly looking at uh, nationalism and patriotism and, and the Labour Party, uh, which has obviously become a sort of um, pressing issue. I mean, very recently, if you you know look at the latest news, and 
after doing the PhD, I was in the usual sort of, you know, post-PhD, post-doc sort of teaching uh, fellowships of um, uh, milieu, if you like, which is obviously not a very good place to be. And, you know, the job market academia is pretty terrible. So I thought one thing that uh, I would like to do, and maybe that could offer me a way out, is maybe I could start to write books instead and maybe even possibly scrape a living off that. And yeah, so this issue is something that I've been thinking about for a while then, ever since I was a, a teenager back in Liverpool, actually, long before I got into academia. And yeah, just the past sort of five or six years, the issues that I'm talking about in the book became more and more pressing. A refugee from academia. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so building a little on the biographical theme, um, can you tell us how you came to write this book specifically? Um, had it been kind of bubbling away over a protracted period or was there a specific event that prompted you to put pen to paper for this book? Yeah, I mean, it definitely been bubbling away. You know, I remember when I was like sort of a teenager growing up in Liverpool and it was really obvious to me the sort of difference between, or, you know, Liverpool's obviously a very left-wing city now at least. Uh, and it's also really interesting when you look at the the demographics of Liverpool. So, you know, of the top 10 safest Labour seats at the last uh, at the last election, fully five of them are on Merseyside, right? In fact, I think the top five are all Merseyside seats, which is crazy. And you look at the demographic difference between the, uh, those five Liverpool seats and the other five, which are London, Walthamstow, London, Tottenham, two Birmingham seats, and then Manchester, Gorton. And, you know, it is, it is very, Liverpool's very white. Uh, you know, you are very few graduates. And yet it is a, very much a hardcore Labour heartland right now. And anyway, when I was growing up, it was obvious to me that people were generally quite left-wing in many ways, specifically to do with the economy and so on. Uh, and yeah, also to do with, I don't know, nationalism and stuff like that as well. But pretty right-wing on many cultural issues like immigration and race and LGBT and personal responsibility and all that kind of thing. And this was really apparent and really obvious to me. But in the early 2000s, no one was talking about this. You know, it wasn't seen as an issue. Politics was very much about, you know, left and right economically. Uh, and okay, the Iraq war as well, of course, and, and terrorism, etc. But in terms of uh, politics, it was still really understood in that, you know, economic left-right sense. And then Jill the Bigot uh, in 2010, or sorry, Gillian Duffy, you should give her a proper name, that sort of issue came out a bit, right? And even a couple of years earlier with Obama's first election. Just remind was, us just remind us who Gillian Duffy was. Yeah, so Gordon Brown's on the campaign trail of the 2010 election. He's uh, in Rochdale. And he's, uh, you know, collared by this woman, uh, Gillian, Gillian Duffy. And she's, she actually complains about all sorts of various things, and including uh, to, there being too many immigrants and all the rest of it. And he gets back in his prime ministerial car to be driven away, not realising his microphone is still on, uh, still turned on from a TV uh, appearance. And he calls her this horrible, bigoted woman. And, you know, it was so emblematic of these sort of tensions that are building up in Labour, because, of course, so many Labour voters like Gillian Duffy absolutely have these opinions about immigrants. And so many, well, other Labour voters, Labour activists, and even the Labour Prime Minister think that these opinions are completely illegitimate. And actually, also, even a couple of years earlier in America, uh, with Obama's first election, uh, when he's on the campaign trail, and he's cornered by this fella, Joe the Plumber, you might remember. And a bit of this is Joe the Plumber saying, hey, yeah, I earn $100,000 a year. I'm going to be out of pocket, you know, with your, uh, you know, healthcare reforms or whatever. But there's also this sort of cultural thing as well of, you know, Obama, the sort of suave, Harvard-educated edu guy of all his liberal ideas, and Joe the Plumber, as far as he sees it anyway, being the sort of tribune of the white working class. 
So I think you had these couple of little things which sort of presaged what was going to happen. And yeah. then it seems with Brexit and with Trump in 2016, suddenly this became mainstream, you know, that there was this whole uh, group of people who had traditionally voted Labour or traditionally voted Democrats, who actually, apart from maybe economics, uh, didn't really share that much in common with the Labour mainstream or the Democratic mainstream, and therefore could be picked off by politicians of the right. Yeah. So um, I guess that segues nicely into the next question, which is if you could define for us, um, so um, left-wing hobbyists is in is the subtitle of the book. Can you define for us what left hobbyism is? And can you give us some examples, um, just to make it a bit concrete and kind of flesh it out for our listeners, can you give us some examples of where a left hobbyist might come from, what they might do for work, mm-hmm. some kind of broad sociological and demographic characteristics? And actually, just to add a, another element there, I mean, if you can, when you explain those, if you can explain them out a little bit, providing some broader context, because most of our listeners are not British. Uh, so, okay. you know, references to places like Rochdale obviously mean something to a British <laughs> audience, but, but probably don't to, to the wider world. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So a left-wing hobbyist then is someone who treats left-wing politics the way a football fan or a soccer fan maybe treats soccer, the way a hip-hop fan treats hip-hop, the way a fashion fan treats fashion, right? So it is uh, a hobby or a pastime that they're interested in. And it's also less really about what they believe in uh, and maybe not even so much about what they do, but actually about who they are, right? So in that sense, it's almost a bit like a religion as well, which you know could also be said about certain you know football fans and so on. So a left wing hobbyist, it it doesn't actually have to be someone who only does it as a hobby, right? You can actually be a, a professional hobbyist if you know what I mean. So you yeah. can actually make a living from politics and still be a politic uh, a hobbyist. You can be a full time activist and still be a hobbyist. But I think the key idea is that it is something that you have elected to do. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's the relationship between yourself and politics is different from how it was for most people in the 20th century. It's something that I suppose has always existed, although uh, I suppose it used to be much more marginalized. So in the UK, for much of the 20th century, for example, the dominance of the trade union movement within the Labour Party, and then later on various uh, sort of, um, you know, black and Asian rights movements and feminist movements and LGBT movements, etc., The people involved in those movements uh, were not hobbyists, you know, they needed to be in a union, you know, they needed to uh, work against racism, they needed to campaign for LGBT or female rights, because it was it was in many cases life or death for them. And you've always had uh, people who, who, you know, altruistic allies who've associated with these movements and helped them out. You yeah. know, you've always had middle class intellectuals helping out the trade union movement or working with them in the Labour Party. You've always had white allies with you know, black and Asian movements and so on and so forth. But I think now you've had a couple of things. So firstly, there's been this massive decline in, uh, certainly in private sector trade unionism and in unionism more broadly. There's been a massive decline in the importance of trade unionism within the Labour Party, declined the working class, declined the importance of the organised working class within the Labour Party. And you've had an explosion of, of higher education and especially in the past 10 years, social media, Right. So whilst there's always been uh, slightly obnoxious, you know, student types and whatever who yeah. have been left-wing hobbyists for a while, social media has completely changed everything because now you can broadcast this to the world, right? It's not just that you, uh, you know, go and do these things on a Saturday and, and okay, the people who attend rallies with you know about your how much of a committed hobbyist you are, but now you can broadcast this to the entire world via Twitter and social media. Mm. 
So, I mean, not not to pick up too much on the the football um, as religion point that you made, because I think we could we could talk about that and maybe about uh, Liverpool as well. Two um, two out of three two out of three of us are Liverpool supporters, and one of us hates football. So okay. at least, at least possibly... one doesn't hate Liverpool, right? That <laughs> no, that's right. That's true. <laughs> I think by extension, like maybe if... <laughs> does uh, after several years of having to hear us talk about it. Um, but actually, I, I wanted to ask a question about the about the book. Um, unsurprisingly, um, yeah. So just to pick up this, I guess this idea of of um, a hobbyist. What differences, if any, is there between a hobbyist and a, a hipster? I mean, is the central idea here that you're talking about people who are performing? Um, politics it's about an identity rather than about a material um, demand I'd say the key I mean absolutely many similarities between a a hipster and a hobbyist right I mean a a political hobbyist is just a a hipster for whom politics you know is 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 the I don't know the uh, organic roast coffee or the vinyl records or the fixie bike or the skinny jeans or whatever right the key difference is and the problem is politics rarely matters you know so talking about football for example Mm. If you are, say, a Liverpool fan, right, uh, and Liverpool don't lose, right, as we have obviously done the past few games, uh, and we don't win anything, you don't stop being a Liverpool fan, right? It, it doesn't matter. It's actually not really about winning. I mean, ideally, you want to win. But of course, you know, supporters of most teams never see the teams win anything, right? And they don't just give it up. They still go every other week and so on, and they're still a fan of that team. So it's, it's great if you do win. But, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't. And actually supporting a football team is about far more than just winning. But politics is not. Politics is not meant to be about the taking part. It is absolutely Mm. about winning. And, you know, the fact that you can say, oh, well, if we never win elections, that's all right, because I can still enjoy going to all the meetings and I can still enjoy my social media activities and I can still enjoy my ideological consistency. Well, that might be all right for you. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there for whom that is not all right, actually, and for whom mm. are really suffering because of, you know, say, Labour or, or even the Democrats' inabilities to win elections. So I think that's a key difference that, you know, hipsters might be a little annoying to some people, but, uh, you know, it's ultimately harmless. But political hobbyists are a big problem because they can actually stop uh, left-wing part get in the way of left-wing parties actually winning. Uh, and obviously that has, you know, very yeah. severe consequences. Hey, can I just throw something, can I throw something in there, which might complicate the, the picture a little bit, but I mean, actually hearing you describe the, the contrast between football fans and political hobbyists, actually your description of football fans for whom kind of taking part, even without winning um, is still meaningful and worthwhile might apply to certain kind of old communists, for example. Um, so, you know, the, kind of the Greek Communist Party, the KKE, who seem to be just happy to maintain their kind of 10% base, which is itself declining because it's getting older um, and maybe losing, uh, you know, those industries are being decimated in which they have strongholds and so on. Um, for them, it is kind of just taking part. So, it, I mean, it, I guess you do have other areas of politics even where that, what you call hobbyism actually obtains as well, but who aren't kind of young millennial hipster types at all, actually, because the, you know, for example, the Greek communist party, just take the example is very far from being that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure. I mean, you know, some, some of these sort of older hands in the labor party, when I told them about my thesis, they were saying, yeah, twas ever dust, you know, you should have tried going to meetings and and rallies in the seventies and stuff. And you'd always see these people, but I'd say a couple of things I'd say, you know, firstly, they tend to be much more marginalised and sort of almost like aware of who they were and what they were and absolutely aware that, no, they didn't plan on taking power uh, and there was still a point in what they were doing. And actually, even today, you could say, you know, if you look at the Green Party in the UK, 
you know, the Green Party is never going to take power, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing important stuff. And uh, at least as far as they're concerned, anyway, it doesn't mean that they're just hobbyists. You know, like Caroline Lucas is, is clearly not just a hobbyist and so on, uh, the leader, the former leader of the Green Party. So, yeah, it's not just necessarily, you, you can absolutely be involved in politics uh, and, and fight for what you believe in, even if realistically it might not be achieved. The problem is then when this hobbyism takes over or infiltrates that one of the two main parties of government, especially when it's the only party that can prevent right-wing conservative governments from taking power. So I guess to, to maybe to move move things on, and you don't have to name names, but if you are happy to, um, who are maybe some of the more famous more famous hobbyists on the left, um, either in the British or American context? Who exemplifies this tendency uh, particularly well in your in your view? So yeah, I mean, as anyone who reads the book can pick out, one of the most common people coming up is uh, Owen Jones. Uh, and yeah, it's, I think it's, it is a coincidence that his sort of rise to prominence in his career over the past 10 years has coincided coincidentally with, you know, the Labour Party, you know, losing consistently and the left sort of losing left, right and centre, no pun intended. Um, and yeah, I think he's a very good example of this. So he is a professional hobbyist, if that makes sense, right? He obviously earns a great deal of money, uh, you know, and success and prestige and fame from what he does. And absolutely, he's not, you know, his heart is in it, right? He's, he's not this sort of cynical careerist. He absolutely believes in this. And sometimes I think that's half the problem, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If people get that much pleasure from, you know, looking at what's going on in the world and then tweeting out solidarity with this, solidarity with that, you know, always uh, taking themselves so seriously, literally treating it like it's a religion uh, rather than politics, then I think that's a big problem. So I think Owen Jones is a very good, uh, sort of a layman's example of that, who is not actually, you know, a professional politician, uh, but is, I would say, definitely a full-time hobbyist. So yeah, thanks. Thanks not for thanks for not saying uh, podcasters. Um, uh, well, not at all. Not, I mean, that, you know, not at all. Because again, it's not about being interested in politics. Like I'm really interested in politics. You know, I read lots about politics and listen to podcasts and watch, you know, politics shows. That's completely fine, right? But I treat it. it you know, it's politics. It, it's something that I'm interested in, but I don't have the relationship to it that I do to other things I'm into, like music or football or, or literature or whatever. I mean, I think you might remember a few years ago when the late uh, pop star George Michael died and, you know, apparently a really nice guy. And everyone was saying, oh, my God, you know, George Michael's such a nice fella. He gave, you know, he does so much for charity. and All of these little tiny tales of people that he'd helped out over the years in various ways. And it all came out after he died. Now, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. So the political, ho- I think this is the difference between someone who's interested in politics, right? So who hosts their own podcast or writes books about politics or whatever, and the hobbyist. The hobbyist is not, uh, is not satisfied just to do all this, but they have to constantly broadcast, I'm dead left wing, me. You know, mm. it would have been like if George Michael kept going onto Twitter every time he gave someone a few quid, and just gave them a few quid, just gave <laughs> them a few, you know, just gave loads of money to charity. They're not, mm. it's almost like, and okay, this is a broader problem with social media. You know, what's the point in doing something if nobody knows that you did it, right? What's the point in going to that nice place on holiday or going to, for, to have yeah. this meal if people don't know you do it? And this is why social media is so intimately uh, interlinked with hobbyism because they just, it's not just about having the interest in politics. It's where politics becomes such a huge element of who you are and you have to broadcast that to everyone else. As I was saying, it's not, you know, it's when politics is not just what you believe in, or even what you do, you know, hosting a podcast, knocking on doors for the Labour Party, whatever. But it's actually a huge part of who you are 
right? And you need to let everyone know that that's who you are. Mm, yeah, so so it's basically what makes a hobbyist is the performativity Absolutely, of 100%, engagement. Exactly, 100%. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting because what used to be described, when people complain about hobbyists, I think they often complain about the media, right? And, it, and it, that can apply to the kind of formal media or it can apply to social media. And it used to be that those people were called intellectuals, that it was the intellectuals. And the, the problem was that, you know, the, the kind of di- the gap between the intellectuals and the masses um, or, you know, the intellectuals and the, the left-wing intellectuals and the working class and, and how they, you know, there were kind of um, differences of perspective between them sometimes. Um, but now we always talk about, we just talk about the media and we talk about, you know, social media and hobbyists on social media. And it's, I guess that's just, I'm just throwing that in there, I guess, because I found that kind of an interesting way that the, our terminology has changed. We, we, we wouldn't call Owen Jones an intellectual. Maybe there's maybe that's a particularly British resistance to speaking about intellectuals. Um, no, no, I think that's people with, you know, a sort of, <laughs> I don't know, not, not good taste, exactly, but a good idea of what an intellectual is. No, I think that's fair enough, yeah. I think it's not so much about, because it's not necessarily about what you believe in, by the way, right? So it, it, by coincidence, almost, not necessarily coincidence, but most hobbyists tend to come from a particular part of the left and have certain views, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that case. You know, I'm sure of, say, you know, uh, edu- higher education rates and social media, whereas it were in the 90s and 2000s, you'd have Blairite hobbyists. I'm sure of that. You know, in fact, somebody, someone else, did, someone else did a podcast with a few years ago, a longtime Labour activist said, you know, what, if you were around like in Labour in the late 90s or early 2000s, you should have seen all these people at conference with like the Blair, like masks and like lapel badges and all this. And it was really cringe. <laughs> that's, that's frightening. Uh, well, exactly. Exactly. Because who, who does that over Tony Blair? You know, anyway. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not necessarily about, what, you know, your political beliefs so much. So it, it, th- this is how I think it's different from that old dichotomy of the intellectuals and the masses, really. Um, because, you know, it, it's not necessarily that hobbyists are particularly intellectuals. You could also, by the way, be from this sort of, you know, horny-handed, uh, toiling, working-class manual background and still be a hobbyist. Very few of them are, of course. Uh, and yeah, from a certain... Um, position if you like i mean this is something i was going to mention earlier but forgot when you were talking about the sort of a uh, sociological background of hobbyists not always but usually they are not on the sharp end of say welfare cuts or police violence or i don't know being bombed in the night by the idf or the us air force or whatever normally they're not on the sharp end of that right uh normally they are motivated by altruism and it's uh, fair play altruism is great and it's important it's good that you do that but ultimately uh, you know whatever happens in politics it doesn't necessarily make that much or have that much of an impact on them which is why i think we've seen recently or it's one of the reasons why in the past few months we've seen this attempt now to recast uh sort of people like myself basically people and maybe i've got no idea but maybe like many of you you know sort of precariously employed you know young people with at least one university degree often living in big cities playing paying too much money for rent there's been a sort of effort to recast us or me at least people like me as the real working class you know all of these uh, ex-miners and steel workers aren't the real working class because you know they might own their own home or you know they voted for brexit or they don't like immigrants and i think this is uh, well, I think you don't have to be the most cynical person in the world to think this is just a little convenient, you know, that Labour Party hasn't lost the real working class because the real working class still vote Labour. But also I think it is, um, I mean, I think it's it's, it's 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 clearly false and I think it's a bit self-obsessed. And yeah, I don't think that these people are the real working class. I don't think that as, as crap as it is to, you know, 
be trying to get a job in media or academia or, or politics or stuff like that and having to pay, you know, half your income in rent or whatever it is, this is a terrible situation to be in. It is not the same as somebody who hasn't worked since the 1980s uh, and, you know, will be yeah. dying pretty soon and, and so on. So obviously the the topic of the book is is the left and, you know, everything that you just, uh, that we've been talking about so far has been focused on uh, critiquing the left and you know I guess God knows the left does need uh, criticism but I was I guess I was wondering is is there a sort of hobbyist of the right or um, you talk about reactionaries um, in the book and Angela Nagel's book Kill All Normies sort of came to my mind just to, as you were um, talking just now because I guess what she sort of traces is there's um, you know there is a sort of a performative um radicalism or performative transgression that's that's the word i was looking for on the right um so there is that kind of hobbyists but they tend to be online on 4chan 8chan whatever um so i guess the question uh, rather than just a, a comment is um are there is this just the left or are there also reactionaries um you know hobbyists of the right yeah, I suppose they definitely are. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember reading that Angela Nagel book and I'm a big fan of it and stuff. Um, I'd say the difference is that the right is winning uh, and that's a key difference. So in the same way that there are far fewer uh, Conservative Party members, there are far fewer Conservative Party activists, there are, uh, the Conservative Party has a far weaker social media game. And that's fine. You know, it doesn't affect them. They can still win elections. It's not a big deal, right? But the left uh, needs extra, you know, the left needs help. It needs activists. It needs door knockers. It needs a mass membership, apparently, and all this kind of stuff. So that's one difference right there. Conservative uh, hobbyists or right-wing hobbyists around the world uh, don't necessarily make that much of a difference. Uh, I don't necessarily think that 4chan and all this culture online has hurt Trump, you know, quite the opposite, right? It probably helped them, absolutely helped them. Um even now, you know, well, maybe actually in the latest, uh, you know, presidential election, where apparently you had these sort of white suburban traditional Republican voters really turned off by Trump's, not even so much flirtation with the far right, but, you know, consummation, if you like, with the far right. Um, who've been so maybe to that extent now, at the last presidential election, maybe even at 20, uh, 2018 midterms, this sort of alt-right, right-wing hobbyists hurt the right, possibly. But I don't necessarily think that they hurt the right as much as left-wing hobbyists hurt the left. And I think right. this is why, you know, I, as far as the sort of alt-right, you know, 4chan, uh, online culture that Nagel describes, as far as I'm aware, it comes to, a, it, it, it is created really in the Obama presidency, right? It's a reaction against Obama, a black president, the sort of liberal shift uh, in, in American politics, the increasing rights for, you know, gays and women and immigrants in American politics. Uh, and I think that's instructive. That, that this this hobbyism really is both a it's like a symptom of being defeated and also right. unfortunately uh, ensures further defeats i think well as a symptom of defeat that that could could be definitely tying it to the contemporary left um but yeah sorry alex i think you want to jump in well i wanted to actually i wanted to jump in i wanted just to ask you um David, if you could uh, explain a little more about what you mean by reactionary, because um, you kind of you, you use it quite frequently in the book. And I wondered if you weren't maybe um, perhaps yourself indulging in a little hobbyism, um, given the kind of the complexity and the shades of um, 
the shades of uh, different varieties and strands of thought on um, on the right of British politics and Western politics more widely. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my main fears when writing the book is I don't want to seem like a right winger myself. You know what I mean? Uh, which and you can obviously see uh, how that could be perceived, right? And and certainly in, in like my you know media appearances and podcasts and all. Have you been you've been called the Nazbol? Oh, uh, yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. Yeah, Strasserite, a red brown. <laughs> in, indeed, yeah, and uh, and probably worse as well, actually. Um, and yeah, so so this is the problem. I so I'm at pains to try and set out in the book. Uh, you know, I am not like these people. I am of the left, etc. And I suppose I can do that by trying to say at points what I believe in and what I want to see happen, etc. But also, I, I think sometimes I do deliberately try and lay it on thick when attacking the right, as you say, quite possibly in crude terms and, you know, in quite generalized and maybe even unfair terms, because I'm really just trying to say, you know, this is not me. I'm trying to distance myself from these guys in case yeah. you think I sound like one of them. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's, this is some, this is a question that's not been put to me before. I think it's a really good point uh, that yes, maybe actually uh, I am a bit crude and a bit unfair and so on. Uh, and maybe simplify things on the right. And that's, I think that's a fair enough point, actually. I just, my, where I was coming from, I wasn't really too concerned about that. I was more worried about, you know, being mistaken for a, a reactionary myself, if you like. So on, on the, on the stress, on the stressorite theme, oh dear, here we go. So the inevitable question, um, for those who are familiar with our podcast, and one thing it's, um, I couldn't help but notice, it's a striking omission in the book, um, given it's about the contemporary state of the left, but you don't really talk about Brexit, um, mm you know, undoubtedly the single most important event in British politics for the last 30 years. And surely there's a rich theme to mind there with questions of hobbyism, given that so many, um, so many hobbyists and not least um, um, almost all the people you discuss in the book, um, mm. at least the named individuals are the hobbyists are indeed anti-Brexit. Mm. There's a few moments when you mention Brexit. So, and they're, you know, they're interesting and telling in themselves, I think. Um, so you give a report of a working class woman who attends a hobbyist women's group in Manchester and all hell breaks loose when this lady publicly ab admits to the fact um, that she voted for Brexit. There's another instance, I think, where you um, call into question Morrissey's support for Brexit or you you um, you indicate it's kind of uh, shows, you know, his kind of um, his right would drift in politics. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little about your views on Brexit and how you see um, the interaction between the hobbyist left and Brexit and the European Union. Yeah, I mean, I think you might think it's curious that because I was literally writing it during the whole, like before, during and after. Right? I think I began writing this and at least I had the the idea uh, in 2015, started writing it at the start of 2016. And I think I finished it like 2018, something like that. So you know, it is curious, actually, that Brexit doesn't play a larger part in many ways. And definitely, I think there's a huge connection there in the sense of, you know, as I think I said before, one of the key elements of hobbyism is this ideological consistency. Right, which I don't think is, is is appropriate in politics necessarily. You should be consistent about your principles, but not necessarily about your politics, because politics can be a bit, you know, you have to might um, uh, affect things to try and win and, and you know get things done, etc. But anyway, this ideological consistency of the idea is well, if you are this, you know, if you are say left wing, then you must believe in all of these things, right? And it's it's not optional. You can't pick and choose what you want to believe in. You've got to believe in all these things. Uh, and so, yeah, I think Brexit is, is massively interlinked with that, whereby so many people who, uh, and, you know, I, I voted to remain and stuff, and uh, I wasn't particularly uh, bothered one way or the other, actually, but there we are. But so many people, yeah, 
if you didn't, if you voted to leave for whatever reason, and obviously lots of people did for all kinds of different reasons, some for left-wing reasons, some to do with sovereignty or the economy or, or immigration or whatever, then actually, yeah, it was seen, oof, you know, this is, you are, you are excluded from, you know, claiming to be left-wing. And in fact, therefore, you must be, I don't know, anti-immigrant or you must be, you know, a Faragist or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of uh, so much of the, uh, and also the reaction to it as well from, 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 from some Remainers who couldn't seem to handle the loss, I think there was a lot of sort of hobbyism and sort of performativity and a sort of identitarianism in that whereby, you know, uh, they had more than even what Brexit meant, like more than even, you know, EU laws or the economy or fishing or whatever the hell. It was absolutely more about, you know, my identity has been challenged and what I believe in has been challenged and, you know, I can't accept it. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, the um, the some of the viciousness of that and the sheer kind of... Um, the sheer inflexibility and the attachment to the identity was really striking. Um, and that's also, I think it's, um, it's uh, like you say, the performativity, but I suppose, you know, I suppose it's important to performativity not be understood as something kind of superficial and playful as the name suggests, because despite that um, so much of this kind of politics can often come. And I mean, you talk about this in the book with relation to, um, to uh, feminism and trans issues in particular, but um, that kind of intensely Manichaean polarization and also a tremendous, um, tremendous viciousness in terms of the way in which the politics is conducted and an inability to actually engage in argument. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just today in, in the news in the UK, this, uh, or yesterday, I think actually, oh no, sorry, today in the news. So uh, Joanna Cherry, uh, an SNP, Scottish Nationalist Party MP, uh, ha, a, a man who apparently sent her rape and death threats on the internet a few days ago, when she was fired from the uh, SNP front bench, uh, being a sort of spokesperson for the party, uh, has, has now been arrested and will be prosecuted. And he was this 30-year-old man. Now, okay, obviously it's an ongoing case or whatever, and I don't know what happened, but it's believed that Joanna Cherry gets lots of abuse online because of her, uh, I don't know, it's an anti-trans stance, but I don't know, it's skeptical about trans rights, maybe to or skeptical about uh, self-ID, right, the trans People should be able to identify as their gender, as, as whichever gender they want. And it, I think it's just so curious that, you know, somebody who, let's just assume, I mean, if this person was attacking Cherry because of her trans stance, a, a man, and I think it's terrible the way all men, you know, any man who attacks or threatens a woman over a stance on trans rights, I think, do you know, just, it, it's so bizarre that they think this is acceptable. They think that they are the good guys, you know, they have the morality there. Because, Okay, unless somebody is an actual bigot who says, oh, trans people should be killed or something like that, then, you know, can you not just accept that this is a political disagreement made in good faith? That somebody whom you may agree with on everything else, you know, but disagree about this one issue, well, can't you just have a political debate with them? And certainly, you know, I just wonder what goes through someone's head if they think they're the good guys and they're sending rape and death threats to, to somebody because yeah. of their political stance. Yeah, yeah, uh, Which absolutely. I always think is crazy. And just a couple more, so, it's, you know, something that always strikes me because this is obviously something that's happened in the past few years and it's it's always interesting to me to find out that certain women who I thought well who I who I have known and believed to be very much on the left like Selena Todd the uh, Oxford academic or uh, Beatrix Campbell who's uh, also a, a, a female academic 
And I remember finding out about Beatrice Campbell a few few years ago because she wrote this sort of essay attacking George Orwell, uh, and you know really attacking you know, this idea of the sort of you know left wing small c conservatism patriotism stuff. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because so many of these women are properly left wing. You know, what I mean, they are not. They would hate, like, say, Blue Labour. You know, what I mean, they would hate Tony yeah. Blair. They do hate Tony yeah. Blair. Right? These are not sort of centrist uh, socialist women, right? A lot of these women no, are indeed. really, really bloody left wing, like Linda Bellos as well, as well, people like that. You know, these are not. These are people who, who if it wasn't for the trans issue kicking them out of the of the cathedral of hobbyism, mm-hmm. they, well, I don't want to call any either of those women hobbyists, but you know, what I mean, these are very left wing women, and yet because of the, not even a major disagreement, really. It's more about degrees than anything else. Because of the slight disagreement on this one issue, that's it, you know, the beyond the pale. No, it, it's amazing, actually. Those people like that who would have a generation ago been actually kind of seen a bit as, um, yeah, kind of the loony left, I think was a term that was used, but, you know, kind of um, maybe even be, be called hobbyists. Now, I'm not arguing that they are, but that I think a lot of, Maybe a lot of mainstream opinion would see them as as in the same way that we see a lot of identity politics left today, and yet now they themselves have been excluded, have been outflanked. I think, as you put it in the book, at some point, one one hundred percent, and it's ter- it's terrible. So people like Linda Bellos or uh, Julie Bindle, who have been beaten up and abused and and at, vilified in the tabloid press and by the right for decades, you know, called lesbians, called crazy, called, you know, all these Manhattan, all these terrible names for yeah. decades before so many of the people who are now abusing them for being terrorists were even born, never mind in politics. And yet these, you know, 18-year-old middle-class boys think they, they have the right to abuse them and call them terrorists, yeah. et cetera. So it's, and also I think the sort of naivety and myopia of it, because, you know, if all of these people who were so left-wing and who never would have dreamed that one day they'd be outflanked to the left, it happened to them. Do they seriously not realize that it can and possibly will happen to them? You know, so many of these people now in the 20s calling people TERFs and whatever. Do they not realize that in 10, 15, 20, 25 years, the exact same absolutely could be happening to them? You know, it's crazy. So, I mean, one thing that you mentioned about ideological consistency or, or political consistency, I mean, what that brought home to me, I mean, I don't, I think people should have ideological consistency, though I recognize that most, let's say, ordinary people, I, the term I kind of hate using, but anyway, you know, people who are not actively politically engaged um, often don't have that ideological consistency. They're not, because they're not that politicized. Um so I think that's a reality you have to grapple with. But for those who are more politicized, and especially the case for you know the political political hobbyists, and especially more middle class people, especially I think in recent years as the middle class has radicalized, whether to the left or to the right, that you have a, a greater alignment. Um, and and by that I mean not necessarily ideological consistency, but what's at issue is an alignment where your cultural attitudes, your preferences, your behaviors are perfectly in line with your politics. And for me, that's the problem. That's the essence of, of contemporary culture wars, where um, your music tastes, your views of, you know, your um, disposition towards, let's say, immigrants or immigration and your attitudes on, I don't know, food about, let's say, veganism or whatever, are totally in line Absolutely. with your political views. And that mm-hmm. is something that's bizarre and was never didn't used to be the case. I mean, that really is something that's new and is a, is a real feature of, of uh, culture wars. Now, where I'm getting where I'm getting to with this is that there seems to be a kind of two sides to this, and I don't mean left and right, but that you have those who perhaps 
are too political, I guess, um, in the sense that they don't take into account class at all. So this would be your typical identity politics left who um, just throws in their cultural preferences as their politics uh, and don't really have any consideration for how their, their you know, for example, trans issues, um, how those might not actually uh, have much resonance for a lot of people. And it's not that they think that trans people should be silenced or that erased or whatever, the, you know, the kind of uh, overblown, overheated rhetoric says, but just that, you know, it's just not not a concern. They maybe don't know any person who's trans. They don't know what's really at stake there and, and probably, you know, rightly don't see that as um, an issue of national importance, right? And I think that's, but then, so you have those people, right? You have the, on the other side though, you have people who seem to perhaps, perhaps not be that interested in a political project and are just identified and focused on identifying who the working class is, the real working class, which is something that you already mentioned, David, um, and, in, and, and then therefore aligning with it and aligning with the right people with what the working class perspective is, what the working class tastes and habits are, and thereby in doing so will win elections. And they seem to be too little interested, in my opinion, in the politics or just in, and in just going, okay, what are the working class believe what do they behave like and let's make ourselves like them um do you see a problem with the latter and maybe if i'm being a little bit uh cheeky here but are you maybe a little bit guilty of the latter yourself uh, at certain points yeah you know a couple of good points i mean with the first one absolutely there are plenty of people who don't seem to take class or material reality into consideration uh, and you can understand why this might have widespread appeal, especially amongst people, you know, from a fairly, uh, you know, middle class background, because it, it, they don't have to do anything, right? They don't have to give anything up. It doesn't threaten them in any way. Uh, as I think I say in the book, you know, certain attitudes, uh, you know, if you're a middle class white person from, say, the UK or the US, certain things to do with, uh, I don't know, say trans rights, if you're not trans, you don't know anyone is, or uh, Middle Eastern politics or what have you doesn't affect you, you know, you're not going to have to pay any more in taxes, you're not going to have to be disadvantaged in applying for a job or to college or anything like that. Um, and yeah, there was a great book out a couple of years ago with Verso by uh, Assad Haider called Mistaken Identity, where he mm. talks, and I, I quote, quote him a lot in the book, actually, and use him a lot in the book. Uh, and he talks about, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's for so many uh, middle class uh, African Americans, middle class, uh, you know, Asian and Hispanic Americans, Identity politics is absolutely great. You know, they want to see a world where, you know, boardrooms are you know, completely diverse and Congress is diverse and nothing else changes. That would be great yeah. for them. So there are a lot of people out there like that. And then the other side of your argument, I completely take what you mean. So you may have heard of a book by Joe Kennedy out from a couple of years ago called Authenticrats. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I had actually jotted down when I was asking my question, Authenticrats, and I, and I wasn't sure people would be familiar with the term. So I, so I jumped over yeah. it. But yeah, exactly. So I think this is probably the most uh, sort of interesting and, and sort of not necessarily persuasive, but I think it's uh, I think he he does make some good counter arguments to the sort of thing that I'm saying in my book. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's fundamentally flawed. So he, he uses this example of this Labour MP, Owen Smith. This is completely ridiculous of people who haven't heard of this, who, uh, you know, uh, is, was running for the leadership against Jeremy Corbyn in 2016. And he's in his constituency of Pontypridd in South Wales, and he's in a cafe, and he gets a cup. They bring him over a cappuccino, and he goes, "What's this?" I, tell, I pretend not to know what a cappuccino is. I said, "Oh, normally I'd have a cup of tea." So Kennedy uses this one thing, and it's a completely ridiculous incident. Obviously, the fact that this guy thought that people would believe that he didn't know what a cappuccino 
Pacino was. And secondly, that he thought that this act would somehow endear him to, you know, quote unquote, traditional Labour voters or the quote unquote working class or whatever is ridiculous. But unfortunately, Kennedy goes off on this uh, and uses this to claim a load of nonsense, in my opinion. And in fairness to him, he is from a, an English literature background rather than a history or political scientist or sociological background. So he talks about his own hometown of Darlington in, in the northeast of England. And he talks about how, you know, the, there's an Italian coffee shop there uh, where they had a proper, you know, uh, back in the 80s, even they had a proper coffee machine, espresso machine, all the rest of it. Uh, and he talks about this little shop called a Guru, where, you know, hippie or aging hippies and young kids who are alternative, etc., could buy incense and bongs and all the rest of it. And he basically making you know, quite an important point, but quite an obvious point. Uh, you know, there's massive diversity amongst the so-called you know, white working class in somewhere like Darlington yeah. or, I don't know, Hartlepool or wherever, whatever you want to talk about. Fine. There's also a good book, a history book came out uh, last year or two years ago by the historian John Lawrence called Me, Me, Me. Uh, where he basically criticised this idea that, you know, society used to be much more communal and, and uh, much more, um, I don't know, there used to be much more solidarity and now it's become more individualistic. And he basically says, you know, people have always been individualistic and these apparently homogenous working class communities have nothing of the sort. Fine. Yeah, I completely agree. That's an obvious point. However, we can absolutely go too far with this. You know, we can absolutely go too far with this. Again, I know, you know, coming from Liverpool uh, and Liverpool in many ways is... Um, and a very strange city, as I was saying earlier, I think. Demographically, if you look at the 98% of people who were British-born, much high, higher than the English average, uh, you know, uh, high, much higher than the English average, sorry, which is about 86, but higher actually than the average in the, the so-called red wall seats, which went Tory uh, two years ago. Uh, if you look at the, the, the low levels of people with um, university degrees, again, lower than the English average as well. This should be somewhere that either went to the Tories in 2019 or... Uh, what had already done so, you know, Mansfield and North East Derbyshire in 2017. And yet, you know, the five, the five safest Labour seats in the country are these are five Liverpool, uh, Liverpool seats with these demographics. So what's going on, right? So there's something interesting going on there specific to Liverpool. But of course, in Liverpool, in the 90s and 2000s, we had stuff like this too. We had, yeah, fancy Italian coffee shops. We had this place called Quiggins, which sounds a lot like this place Guru uh, that Kennedy describes. And you get that does not mean to say that uh, goths and alternative kids and gay kids and kids who are a bit nerdy and into books weren't marginalised and bullied and beaten and abused and outcast. It doesn't mean that most people didn't have uh, attitudes on you know, race and immigration and LGBT and crime and punishment and all that kind of things, which would not find a happy home in the Labour Party today, just like I'm sure in Darlington at the time it was the exact same. So just because there is this great variety and heterogeneity of, say, you know, the traditional white working class life and indeed life everywhere, doesn't mean that, you know, purely in a sort of sociological or academic perspective, we can't sort of generalize about certain groups. And much more pressingly, from a political perspective, just because you will always, always, always find people who are very pro-immigration and pro-trans and massively obsessed with Palestine in, in you know, these so-called traditional working class areas, doesn't mean that it's not fair to say that these uh, ideas and policies and beliefs are mm. not characteristic of the whole area. And it yeah. certainly doesn't mean that, you know, it won't be electorally damaging uh, yeah, I mean, these policies. Th there's a lot of projection, I guess, on, on both sides <laughs> that I think we could conclude. But I just, I mean, I completely take your point that, you know, it's absolutely, it's, yeah. So I think the, this idea of oh, whatever quote unquote working classes, we should, you know, adopt them and care about them and, and, and make them. Yeah, I think that's completely.
completely wrong, uh, sort of for the reasons I've just said, but also because obviously it's such a small minority of people, right? Uh, and yet, why should, you know, um, aside from all questions of electoral probity, and I don't necessarily think in the long run that obviously exclusively going after these votes and making the Labour Party all about chasing these particular votes is a good idea electorally, but never mind that. Why sort of, moral, you know, there's no... Uh, complete, you know, there's no reason why morally or ethically the Labour Party should always be focusing on a particular kind of people either. So, yeah, I completely mm. take the point that it's a mistake to obsess over who or what the real working class is and just slavishly adhere to what we think they believe. Yeah. Uh, David, thanks for reminding uh, us or introducing listeners to Owen Smith, um, one of the, the, the great Labour politicians whose whole life was so workshopped that i think for one valentine's day he said he was going to have a steak salad and spotify because he and you can see how that would have been workshopped you, you want a slight implications <laughs> of netflix and chill you have steak <laughs> that's very masculine salad that's healthy um uh, so yeah and i think that yeah, authentic cool. spotify what spotify good. compared to netflix and chill Sorry, so steak, salad, and Spotify. It's like so. You yeah, know but Netflix he doesn't say. Right? Yeah, so he doesn't say Netflix and chill. So what's Spotify? That'd be too obvious, maybe. It's, you know, it's implied. <laughs> it's implied. He's smooth. That also yeah. starts. Yeah, for no, for American listeners, smooth. this is probably a guy who's maybe comparable to to Mayor Pete Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, um, yeah. I think yeah. In terms yeah. Of, that's right. Actually, actually. yeah, yeah. But yeah. straight, I mean, equally sociopathic, but straight. <laughs> maybe the problem with um netflix and chill is i mean i'm not quite young enough to understand but i think it's implying that you're not really watching netflix you're, you're having sex basically i think so maybe i think he couldn't go with that it was a bit too risky for he him. actually just is eating salad i mean that's that's it that's <laughs> <laughs> so i wanted i wanted to ask you david about this um you mentioned how the people now who are so kind of wrapped up in um, particularly in the the online kind of flame wars and the authoritarianism and the kind of the vicious slander and even the violence of um, of left wing hobbyism, that they themselves might be subject to um, some of this in the future when public culture, for whatever reason, um, might turn against them. And you know, you've um, you've given us an example of that in the past. And I wondered if you had any um, if you had any sense of where the outflanking might come from or what it might look like. Yeah, it's, it's a huge question, isn't it? It's a really interesting question. Um, and uh, because obviously it's it now it doesn't seem as though there is many sort of new sort of development that could open up, right? It, you know, uh, you could say, I don't know, 100 years ago, obviously women were massively repressed, so that needed to be changed. And then maybe gay, uh, well, black and Asian and gay people and so on, at least in white majority countries. Uh, but now it does. And, and obviously trans people more recently. So it doesn't necessarily seem as though there is a sort of new front which could be opened up. So yeah, it's curious to wonder what the what the new thing will be. Um, did you see? Did you see years and years the TV no, show? I didn't actually. Oh no? yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I didn't actually see it, but I was listening to Russell T Davies on on the radio the other day, and he was talking about that. And he was talking about yeah, the sort of transhumanism bit. Where yeah, you, there's so there's, there's a great scene. There's a great scene in it where um, one of the kids to one of the couples in the show comes out as trans, and they're um, you know they're very kind of um, kind of. Uh, um, welcoming and open-minded yeah. yeah they're very accepting and warm and they say we'll support you um and you know we'll help you kind of transition if you if you want to and you know they're very kind of loving and supportive parents and then the kid says no no i don't want to i don't want to change sex and the parents are like no you mean change gender they're like no i don't want to change sex i'm not trans like that i'm transhuman 
And then the parents completely flip out and like, and like, you know, so good. kind of ground her and she runs up the stairs crying and torn up. And, um, and I thought it was, it was very clever and amusing. And um, so when you said like, you know, something about which people might be outflanked on in the future, it just brought that scene back to mind. Maybe, um, maybe in the future, like, um, you know, the trend, I don't know. I mean, it's slightly facetious, but um you know, it's hard to imagine the kind of the twists and turns of some of these um, some of these uh, outcomes of identity politics. But, but, but it's good because she wanted to up this child wanted to upload you know, a teenager wanted to upload herself to the web basically to to delete herself as a biological existence and just exist yeah. on the internet. So I mean, it was it, it's a brilliant little turn there, and in, in an otherwise a bit patchy show, I think that was just a real standout moment. It was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure whatever it is, it will be completely discombobulating and disorientating for people who thought they were pretty hip and who thought they were pretty with it and who thought they were at the cutting edge of, you know, political radicalism, etc. Whatever it is, I'm sure it will be unexpected. And so many people now who are, yeah, sort of abusing other people for, for, for not getting with the programme will themselves be, uh, be outflanked and, and, and won't know what hit them. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I mean, the, the book, your book is in some ways obviously about frustration, about frustration with the hobbyist left. And it's obviously one that we share. Um, we share the frustration and the way that, I guess, the analysis that left hobbyism impedes the left in being more successful than, than it currently is. But I guess looking more broadly, you could look at other you know, parts of the political spectrum and, and the hobbyist left itself and see the hobbyist left itself as deeply frustrated. I mean, they, they might be frustrated because um, they also don't seem to have that much popular traction or they're frustrated with continuing whatever cis heteronormative white supremacist patriarchy um, and that, you know, the people, the great unwashed out there aren't able to accept basic things that for them seem completely basic, such as gender self-identification. Um, but then also more broadly, you know, there's probably pl plenty of frustrated liberals out there um, who are completely bemused by the fact that people might support Brexit um, and that people would do something so self-evidently counterproductive as, as leave the EU. Um, or, you know, frustrated even neoliberals who think, you know, we haven't really tried proper neoliberalism. There's too still too much state regulation um, and that we need to, you know, if we haven't tried it like a bit like kind of old communists saying, we, you know, but real communism was never tried out. Uh, real neoliberalism yeah. was never tried out. Um, and so on. And, you know, you frustrated Tories as well who feel like the country is being overrun by cultural Marxists and, you know, university campuses going completely crazy and the Guardian and whatever else. Right. So everybody's frustrated. Um, everybody is frustrated with the lack of political traction for their own projects and for their own views. So I guess my question then is, one, what do you make of this widespread frustration? And is your frustration with the hobbyist left more important, more significant, or is it just one among other frustrations? Okay. Yeah. So I completely take the point that plenty of people on the hobbyist left, absolutely, as I was saying earlier, I think, and I think someone else was, was making this point as well. This is a reaction to defeat. You know, this is a reaction to being sort of marginalized by, by sort of mainstream politics or political defeat and so on. There's a great quote from the socio uh, sociologist Manuel Castells. I think I pronounced his name right. I'm not sure. And he basically says, I, can't, I haven't said it's a great quote and I can't remember it, but whatever. He basically says, uh, when people cannot control the world around them, they shrink uh, the world to the sort of the, the world, they shrink the world to that which they can control, something mm. like this. 
Timon the meerkat from The Lion King actually said it more succinctly. He said, <laughs> when the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world, right? And yeah. so much left-wing hobbyism, I think, is based on this. It's going, oh, you're not going to support us then? Or you're going to defeat us? You, you won't accept Ed Miliband? Well, up yours. You'll see what we'll go, you know. It, this is it. It's, it's almost like, you know, we can't, and this is what it flourishes. And this is why, you know, uh, social media flame wars and so on is so bitter and so much of these attacks on people in academia are so bitter because, okay, this is the world we can control, right? We can't win elections. We can't control the economy. We can't stop the planet heating, but we certainly can hound people off social media. We certainly can stop people speaking at university. This is what we can do, you know, in this Again, a footballing reference when uh, Pep Guardiola was talking about Jose Mourinho uh, after a, an El Clasico match a few years ago. And Guardiola said to the media, in this room, Mourinho is the fucking chief. You know, he can't necessarily beat us on the pitch, but he can certainly beat us in the media room. And I think so mm. much hobbyist left is what's going on. Uh, so much hobbyist leftism is a response to that. Absolutely. It's a response to the marginalization amongst the population at large and their electoral defeats, their electoral rejection of the population. Now, it's interesting that you say absolutely so many people from all around the political spectrum uh, have a similar problem. So I think, and also, by the way, you know, uh, a response when you hear people talking or complaining about, um, you know, people on social media or, you know, college activists and all the rest of it, uh, or, you know, is that, well, you know, look at, say, uh, racist violence, right? Look at murders and suicide of trans people, you know, look at, uh, you know, all these immigrants or asylum seekers being detained in army barracks, you know, look, it's, it's clearly this is a big deal, right? Clearly we are not winning, clearly we don't have any influence, etc. So I think it's a bit like the old Marxist idea of base and superstructure. You know, you have the sort of socioeconomic base and then you have the sort of political cultural superstructure. So I think there's something similar to that that's going on. So if you look at the actual reality of what's happening, clearly the hobbyists have no purchase or very little purchase anyway. Clearly on both sides of the Atlantic, I mean, maybe the US, hopefully not anymore, but anyway, clearly on both sides of the Atlantic, there are uh, people in power who are very anti-immigration, who are certainly, or the, the word with Donald Trump, anyway, certainly willing to use race, uh, you know, to, to further racial te- uh, tensions and anxieties as a way to, mm. you know, uh, get themselves into power. Clearly, there are people who, uh, you know, are, are, are very right-wing in cultural wars, and they seem to be in power right now. But then you have, aside from the reality of, you know, racism and racist violence and homophobia and all the rest of it, you have this sort of, you know, political, cultural superstructure of, say, uh, the social media world, of academia, of, in fact, much mainstream media, not just social media, where actually it's completely different. There, right-wingers can't get a word in edgeways. There, people are ashamed to be right-wing. There, you know, uh, the left is completely dominant. And the problem is that this latter world means nothing and doesn't really do anything. And this is the problem. So it really alienates many moderate people and conservative people because it looks to them when they go onto the internet or they, you know, they, they turn on the television or they hear what's going on university campuses, it looks to them as though they're losing and they're, you know, everything they believe in is, is under threat and has been disregarded. Whereas actually that's not the case at all. You know, they're still very much in power uh, and most of their worldview still pertains. Um, and this is why hobbyism is so bad, you know, gives these people this impression. And yeah, vice versa. So many of the hobbyists, they think rightly, actually, that, yeah, when it comes to the real world, when it comes to government policy, when it comes to the economy and stuff, uh, we don't have much purchase. We're not getting our way. And yet they do sort of completely dominate certain spheres. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that these two things feed off each other. Yeah, I mean, for all that the right, you know, right populists have been the only new political force to seem to have been, to make a breakthrough in the past 
10 years, they themselves probably suffer from their own disconnect from, from the social base. Um, so although they have some electoral success, I'm sure some of the more, you know, the kind of right-wing populist hobby horses don't have that much popular appeal. I mean, so they maybe are able to connect on kind of skepticism towards open borders and immigration, but some of the other stuff about cultural Marxism is probably also like, what the hell are you even talking about? I don't know what cultural Marxism means, you know? Um, as an aside- Jordan Peterson. As, well, yeah, exactly. As, as an aside, I think uh, the, the classic uh, right-wing populist is Jose Mourinho, actually. You know, <laughs> if you look at it, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, his, his politics is, he, rather his football is this kind of gritty defensive politics, uh, defensive football of the little guy, you know, and, uh, and he communicates through the media and that's his, you know, that's his space. That's where he, uh, that's where he really triumphs. Um, but ultimately, he defends the interests of, uh, of of oligarchs. You know, so he pretends to be this to speak up for the little guy, but actually, in the interests of the oligarch, exactly, he's a classic yeah. right wing populist. Yeah, good point. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to agree. <laughs> no, it is no. good. It's a good. You, you've clearly workshopped that. It's a good. It's a good. Bit. <laughs> I have not. That's only the second time I've ever said that. So there you go. Oh, I wanted to. So I wanted to. Um, Kind of, uh, I suppose, break it down, or I suppose uh, push push away from hobbyism for a moment. Um, if we so, if we pass, if, so clearly you want to pass hobbyism from the contemporary left. But then I want to ask you: so, what does left mean for you, David? Um, how do you understand the left historically, apart from the malign influence of hobbyism? So for me, I definitely describe myself as more of a social democrat than a socialist, although it depends what you mean by socialist. I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, for me, common ownership uh, is not necessarily the be all and end all. Might be a good idea, I don't know. Uh, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the be all and end all for me. I'm definitely someone more in the sort of, you know, Tony Crossland type social democrat school, I think, who would like to, you know, see a sort of mixed economy, but still relative equality right i absolutely don't want to see uh you know billionaires and homeless people right and i think this is this is more achievable and i think it would be more achievable through tax and welfare and redistribution rather than say common ownership per se but whatever so but for, yeah for me absolutely the left is not just about class and, and and material things and economic things because of course you know issues to do with race and gender and sexuality etc are very much material things in many ways. You know, they absolutely have massive impacts on people's lives and clearly interact with class in important ways. So for me, the left is both about economic justice and social justice. It's about reducing inequality to relative equality. I don't necessarily even absolute equality because so few people do. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily feasible and most people clearly don't want it. You know, they don't want to see absolute equality. Uh, but yeah, relative equality in terms of economics, I mean. And then definitely clearly in terms of sort of uh, the treatment of people, absolutely, I think, uh, you know, uh, people should be treated equally irrespective of, of their sort of demographic background, etc. Uh, so, yeah, firstly, I think that the sort of economic aspect of the left and the social justice aspect of the left are both massively important. You can't have one about the other. You shouldn't go for one about the other. So I'm definitely not one of those old leftists who's maybe more like, oh, you know, it's all about econ uh, economics. It's all about money. Um, so as to sort of, you know, what world I'd like to see, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really tough. It's, this is obviously a shit situation right now that we've been in the past few years. And, um, it's hard to see anything right now other than sort of incremental, uh, you know, change and slow evolution. Um, but yeah, in terms of how I see the history of the left, I mean, something that's 
really important to, to me and my politics, really, and is that I, I, you know, I believe that most people, whilst they are, I suppose, sort of slightly left-wing economically, they're quite right-wing culturally, and that's fine. It doesn't mean that the left should therefore be right-wing culturally. But I think it means that you have to be quite sophisticated if you're going to win power in a democracy uh, and you're going to try and implement these measures. So someone I talk about in the book, you know, I talk about basically the history of the labor movement in the, in the, in the UK in the 20th century and how pretty right wing it was on so many issues for so long and how the success the Labour Party did have, say, in the 60s with uh, legalising abortion, legalising homosexuality, abolishing the death penalty, etc., was usually done sort of, you know, through the back door almost, you know, sponsoring private members' bills and so on, right? They never put it in any of the manifestos in 64 or 66 that we're going to do this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think basically a lot of my politics stems from my belief that, or, or even stems from, you know, I myself personally, okay, I have a PhD, you know, I've got loads of books, whatever. I'm pretty left-wing on all these cultural issues, but I'm aware that my background and my education, whatever, I have these political beliefs because of that, you know. I'm aware that most people don't actually share these beliefs, and I'm aware that if I want to see what I believe enacted, I need to really work hard to persuade people. And I think that's what distinguishes my vision of the left from the hobbyist vision. Yeah, so um, I guess the the book seems to be um, addressed basically to the non-hobbyist supporters of the Labour Party, um, and it's filled, I guess, with an urgency to to try and get Labour back to par- back to power, uh, ASAP. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, maybe this um, is can even be at the expense of certain issues or certain questions. Um, that you maybe might be more willing to kick down the road, such as republicanism, nuclear power, um, for electoral advantage. So I guess the you know time to be more more critical of of Labour potentially, or move the conversation in this direction. Um, I guess from your point of view, and you just were outlining, I guess your politics there. Um, why is it so important or so urgent to return um, Labour to power? What do you think they could do with it? Yeah, so I always think any kind of left-wing party in power really is surely nearly always better than, than not being in power and having a right-wing party in power. I don't really subscribe to the view, which I know a lot of people on the left do, that actually having a sort of wishy-washy, you know, left-liberal administration just makes things worse, right? Because they get sort of rejected. They turn people, people are disappointed and turn against them and it just emboldens the right. Maybe, but I don't know. I mean, I think certainly in the UK, we just haven't had enough Labour majority governments to really test out that theory, you know? Unlike in the US, at least, you know, you do tend to get a Democrat uh, every couple of election cycles. Um, so, yeah, I think in, in the UK system with the first past the post electoral system and there being two main parties and only two parties really that realistically could take power uh, with the Tories obviously not going to introduce any kind of electoral reform. Why the hell would they, you know, the current system has benefited them very well for the past hundred years. So the Labour Party are really the only game in town uh, right now um, to stop the Conservative Party being in power. And I do think that, and I don't want to go too much sort of, you know, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, inevitability of gradualism here. But I definitely think that's, you know, small, you know, there seems to be now, I've heard lots of sort of, um, I mean, not only do people tend to be more, you know, economically left wing than the current government, but anyway, lots of focus groups and polling, et cetera, of the past year after the coronavirus crisis 
has indicated that people, all kinds of people, really do want to see some change now, like some real change, not just tinkering around the edges. And clearly, I don't think the Conservative Party are going to deliver that. And Sorry, David, just to think- just to jump in here, because I guess this is one of the like one of the main questions. What what would be the the reason for thinking that Labour might be more likely to to deliver this sort of change than than the Tories? I mean, there's a there's a certain argument that we might be seeing in almost in real time a realignment of British politics in the last mm. election. Obviously, the Tories got a much you know a much greater share of working class votes than than Labour did. Um, so I guess the, the the question is, you know, what I mean. I think there are you're probably not the only person who might be very frustrated with with Labour, but sort of is there a point at which to kind of draw a line and say, okay, we've got to accept that this uh, this could become a party which is not you know not in our interests. Yeah, I mean, I think this absolutely, you know, this is something that I read in a book by Thomas Frank, the American uh, historian academic a few years ago, where he talks about, I think it was either what's the matter with Kansas or listen, liberal. And he says, you know, is it actually a problem if the Democrats is the party of Wall Street and the middle class? And, you know, the Republicans actually become the party of the working class, however you consider it. Uh, And he basically says, well, you know, what would happen if the only sort of ostensibly left-wing party in a two-party democracy sort of gives up on the working class? And, okay, yeah, I don't think that just because absolutely there is being this realignment going on now, and I do think, unlike some people who try and say, oh, you know, these Tory voters aren't really working class, you know, because they own like a £80,000 council house in Middlesbrough, whatever, a former council house in Middlesbrough, whatever. You know, I don't believe that. I believe absolutely there is this class realignment going on. However, I don't think that the Conservatives would actually try and, and do anything in their interests, not least because everything else to do with them, their MPs, their activists, their, their sort of corporate uh, sponsors and so on, the donors, uh, you know, the, the big business lobby groups uh, would not let them do that. Uh, they would lose so many of the voters if they genuinely tried to do that. And similarly, the Republicans, right? I think the, this sort of class realignment is much more advanced in the States you know, with the, the so, so much white working class support for the Republicans. And clearly, I don't, I mean, we saw Trump's tax cuts, you know, in 2017, uh, not, not only incidentally benefiting the richest 1%, but quite deliberately, uh, disproportionately, you know, in the, in the actual legislation benefiting the richest 1%. So I don't see the Conservative Party generally trying to advance the interests of working class people or poorer people any more than the Republicans have done in the States or will do. So I think now this is this could be one of these circumstances in this current climate, maybe, I mean, who knows what's going to happen when this pandemic's over. But I think hopefully this could be something similar to the years after the Second World War, when there is this actual massive popular demand for some kind of radical social economic change, which would almost force the Labour Party's hand, that even if you have even if you believe that the Labour Party is beyond redemption and is staffed with careerists and bureaucrats and centrists, that actually it would be in their own interests for their own career and to follow popular sentiment to actually, you know, enact change. So not only a scenario where it's possible, but actually where, you know, the Labour Party is, is being pressured by the average voter, you know, the so-called average voter, ordinary voters uh, to do so. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, mm. I completely... You know, it's easy to be despondent and stuff, but I think I have more faith in Labour than the Tories for now, at least. I mean, I see your point, and obviously the pandemic and all the destruction it's uh, it's bringing demands a certain radicalism. I mean, I think even just to even just to keep the show on the road, I mean, the kind of capitalist show on the road, you need a, some more drastic measures, as we're already seeing. 
Um, but I, I mean, I guess I'm skeptical that the Labour Party purely responding to electoral demand will do that. I mean, without kind of leadership and without external demands on the Labour Party to push leftwards or to be more radical in, in whatever sense you, you, you know, you care to, you care to imagine. Um, and whether that comes from without or within the Labour Party, I can't see that happening. And it seems that Labour is so wedded to effectively to neoliberalism, to, to fiscal responsibility, uh, that that's not going to happen. I mean, I don't buy that the Tories are going to do it either. I mean, the Tories might feel a little bit more flexibility in um, spending more um, in the way that Labour doesn't. But I don't think, you know, Labour are going to, the Tories are able to respond to what the moment demands any more than Labour is. So I guess, is that not the problem that we're just, we, I mean, in Britain stuck with this, you know, red versus blue and no, not being able to imagine any kind of different political forces emerging to, to overthrow that. Yeah, it's definitely a shit situation. But, uh, you know, what can I say? I mean, everyone does have a vote, even if the electoral system neuters it in many ways. Uh, people are becoming things like the Internet and technology. You know, people have been easier to communicate and organize and all the rest of it. People are getting, uh, I think, much more, uh, not only sort of edu- better educated in a formal sense in terms of qualifications. I think sort of political education in some ways is is, is becoming more widespread now on the right as much as the left. So. I, you know, I, I'm not as maybe despondent. I mean, let's see what happens if we get another Labour government, right? If we do get another Labour government anytime soon and, you know, they don't really do anything, then, okay, I'll be pretty you know, pessimistic. Um, but until then, I'm not. And I think I would just hope that if the situation is as you describe, and really if we can't rely on Labour to do anything, then, I don't know, I would just hope that, and I would assume that somehow this pressure will tell somehow. So um, one last question for you, David, um, which is to, I just wanted to um, hear some more from a point that you make um, at the end of the book, which I was really intrigued by and fascinated by. Um, You say at the end of the book that if the kind of the malign influence of left hobbyism isn't checked and there isn't a kind of a course correction in British politics, then you say that Israel might offer Britain a vision of its future. Quote, Israel acts as a sort of terrifying, if still unlikely, vision of a possible future UK. A highly educated, privileged elite which recoils from nationalism and militarism, outweighed and outvoted by a reactionary precariat mass beneath, end quote. So could you explain um, this comparison now to bid more? I mean, um, what you're... What are, what are you thinking of specifically in the context of Israel, which might not be familiar to um, to some of our listeners, and how you think what that might look like if it did actually materialize in the UK? Yeah. So I think the US, and okay, Israel, the US and Britain, three very, 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 very different countries in all kinds of different ways, not least, I don't know, ethnic breakdown and economy and size and history and whatever. Uh, and I think actually the US is slightly ahead of, of the UK in this regard, as we saw last time with Trump uh, improving on his vote share amongst African-Americans and Latino-Americans and Asian-Americans and so on. Um, but basically, if you go to Israel, and this is where my wife's from, uh, which is why I've been a few times and, you know, lived there intermittently over the years, is that, you know, you get off, uh, like get the, the train from Tel Aviv airport into the center of Tel Aviv. 
the first thing you notice is not just all these kids with guns, these 18-year-olds in their army fatigues, but that they are nearly all black or brown, right? There are so many Ethiopian uh, Israeli soldiers. There are so many uh, Arab Israeli soldiers, Arab Jewish soldiers, because actually the, the sort of Ashkenazi elite tend very much not to be in sort of bog standard, you know, mainline infantry roles. They tend to be in the Air Force or the Special Forces or the Intelligence Corps, etc. Anyway, and, and, you know, the, the tale of Israeli, I mean, Israel's tragedy in many different ways and, and the politics in Israel over the past few decades is particularly tragic. So the left, such as it is in Israel, and when they say the left, they mean, how do you feel about the occupation? How do you feel about the Palestinian issue? It's not about left versus right in an economic sense, or indeed in an LGBT sense, or in the environment or feminism or whatever. It is all about that one issue. The left in Israel, such as it still exists, uh, is, yeah, completely marginalized, tiny minority, and unfortunately is not just... Uh, reserved to, you know, intellectuals, and, and, and but it's also class-specific, right? So it's very well-educated people, very well-off, middle upper-middle-class least people, and overwhelmingly uh, Ashkenazi, white, original sort of Jewish settlers from even before 1948. And the right in Israel, like the Likud party in particular, has its main support amongst not just Mizrahi Jews, you know, who immigrated from Arab countries, who tend to be much poorer than the Ashkenazi, uh, much not as well educated, much more right wing, but also Ethiopian Jews as well. Uh, this is starting to move a bit now, actually. But for decades, the Ethiopian uh, community in, in Israel uh, was massively supportive of the Likud. Uh, and okay, it's starting to move a bit now, but it's still very much the case. I read this brilliant, uh, and so it's really interesting because you get, you know, with politics and stuff, not just the Palestinian issue, but also with, say, asylum seekers, right? Because there's lots and lots of asylum seekers in South Tel Aviv. Uh, it used to be a very much working class Mizrahi area. The working class Mizrahis don't like them, want to boot them out. And of course, nearly all the people who support the asylum seekers are, are Ashkenazi middle class Jews from elsewhere. And there was this great article by this Israeli academic called Nassim Mizrahi. It's literally his name as well, Mizrahi, uh, about this protest uh, in, in South Tel Aviv a few years ago, where you have these sort of it's a sort of pro-refugee protest right so these uh white uh, it's not actually by refugees themselves it's by you know ashkenazi middle-class students and so on um who are supporting the eritrean and sudanese refugees in south tel aviv and they are met by this counter-protest of um working class mizrahi jews who start chanting hitler didn't kill enough of you which is crazy by itself by the way it just shows you Jesus this, Christ. This, wow. Exactly. Incredible. Well, exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, the Holocaust is, I don't want to, I'm, I'm actually not Jewish myself, although my wife is, I'm Jew adjacent, as they say. So I don't want to say too much. Yet. But for a lot of Mizrahi Jews in Israel, the Holocaust is not quite their story in the same way it is for European Jews. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, it doesn't have the same role in their life. For them, actually, their expulsion uh, from Arab countries after 68 or earlier, sorry, 67 already, is more about their story. And I think I'm bringing this up because it just shows you this sort of, this like, I don't want to say race, racial or ethnic hatred, but like this intra-Jewish uh, class and, and educational and intra-Jewish hatred of these people who think, you know, you only support the asylum seekers because you are rich, because you are well-educated, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I really... I, we can see this now with, with the so-called white working class in the US and, and in Britain to a lesser extent where the idea is, you know, you only have these views on, on trans issues, on, on, on Palestine, on uh, Trident, on immigrant, blah, 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 because you are privileged and because you're well-educated. And as, as we know, as I said before, that's obviously a massive, massive, massive oversimplification. But I can, you know, I fear that 
in coming decades, as the population of the US and Britain becomes more diverse. Uh, so I touch on this in the book, and it's going to be a main theme of my next book, actually. So many, uh, you know, black and brown uh, Americans and Brits are on cultural issues, uh, much to the right of sort of white, well-educated Brits. And if the sort of marginalizer, if you know, the Labour Party becomes more and more the postgraduate party, not just the graduate party, but the postgraduate party. It becomes more and more obsessed with theory and all this kind of stuff, which is inaccessible to so many people. I can absolutely see the Tories making huge inroads with Black and, uh, and Asian Brits in the coming decades, just as they have done amongst the, the, uh, you know, the, the white working class uh, in recent decades. And that might seem strange right now, but, you know, in many ways... Uh, with the Republicans and the Conservatives, the reasons that a lot of non-white people don't support them is because of their well-earned reputation for racism. And if they can shake that, then they could do really well. You know, if it sounds strange to talk about lots of Black and, and Asian Britain supporting the Tories in a few decades, well, if you'd have gone to so many of these Northeast and Yorkshire coalfield seats 35 years ago and said, you're going to have a Tory MP in 35 years, I'm sure they would have been shocked as well. So, as I say, it's unlikely. And, okay, we're talking about free countries, very different demographics here and different political systems and economies, et cetera. But still, it is a sort of terrifying vision of the future, I think. No, I think, I mean, uh, I, you know, I don't know enough about the internal dynamics of Israeli politics to um, to judge it, though the picture you paint is, um, is compelling. Um, but I don't doubt the Tories can make inroads. At the same time, I would hazard to say that um, even if they do make these inroads into ethnic communities, ethnic um, voting blocks that have thus far been um, um, hostile to them, I still think they'll probably still be complaining about how cultural Marxists still dominate the world and are still in charge. And um, even with even with an expanded majority, um, I, they'll probably still be complaining um, sure. in their own version of hobbyism. But um, that's been fantastic. Um, thank you so much, David. And um, um, uh, we can leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great.